and welcome to Business Without with me, Dominic Frisby. And Ori Clark is perhaps the only single-branded, multidiscipline practice in the UK. Translated, that means it is a legal and an accountancy firm. And Andy Ori is partner, and Andy made the observation that so many of the firm's clients, so many of his and his partner's clients, are doing such fantastically interesting things, and he wanted to find a means to share these people, their stories, the things they're doing with a wider audience. And that means is this podcast. So, Andy, hello. Who have we got on the show today, and what are we going to be talking about? Hello, Dominic. Uh, We have the very fine Tom Jeffs, of Lucidica, which is a leading London IT service provider of many years. Uh, he also has some business interests in the Ukraine, um, uh, supplying, uh, I don't want to say labor, but I guess supplying people in various forms. Sounds derogatory, labor. Services. <laughs> services, supplying services. Um, and on today's show, we'll be talking to Tom about R&D tax relief sorry and doing business with the ukraine so how's it going thomas how's business today uh business is good uh ups and downs as always but uh you know with the the current climate let's not mention too many things about that um you've got to look for opportunities and you've always got to be positive as a business owner and um it's i mean it's there's so much about the journey owning a business managing businesses it's all about the journey and you've got to find positives and find ways in order to get through regardless what's going on in the world you've got to you've but got isn't to, that isn't that the basic concept of business that, that if you ever think whatever you're doing right now if you're not looking for something new you're dead anyway sort of thing it's it's you know well yes and no I mean like uh, I love Steve Blank's quote which is um, large businesses execute known business models and uh, small entrepreneurial businesses uh, find uh, scalable and repeatable new business models um, and I don't know whether you can call my main business a startup anymore considering it's been going for for 20 years but it's certainly small and um, what I love more is finding new things finding new ways to be better but I think it's so important in terms of small business in terms of startup to, to try and find the ups to try and find and continually search and look for new repeatable models and I remember talking to, to Andy before and one of the things he said he likes about our business is that we have many strings to the bow and we find new opportunities and technology is massively broad and and you you, you just find an, another avenue and as something dies away just naturally not because of the political climate because technology changes you're always searching for another thing to 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 find revenue and to find ultimately value for, for your clients um what is r&d tax relief Oh, he's looking at... For me or for Andy? Whoever wants to answer that question. Out of a pure accounting credentials, I feel this is a question I should initially field. R&D is uh, tax relief is pretty much the only grant available... Uh, widely uh, in the UK. It's a grant that's operated through the tax system to encourage R&D development. But surprising this may sound, you can conduct the R&D development anywhere in the world. But through our tax system, you can allocate expenditure, which is R&D, which is when you have a problem, you are a competent professional, not the world's expert, but you are a competent professional in your field, and you have a problem which you are uncertain how to resolve 
of R&D begins. Uh, and then you can take that time, that cost, and uh, effectively turn it into a tax relief. Get a third in cash back from the government on that cost of that individual or individuals in wherever they are in the world working on those problems. Did that make any sense? Um, it did. So I, for example, write off my research, uh, R&D research and development. Presumably. It's not in science and technology, though. It needs to be in the field. of. It comes from science originally, so the fields of science where you had peer-reviewed papers. So the grant's only available in science and tech? Yeah, and technology, and it doesn't include human sciences because otherwise you'd be able to do marketing. You'd be yeah. able to sort of say, oh, we were looking at people and how they were buying our products. So anyway. But I mean, things like, you know, I write books as well. Uh-huh. And so say, for example... Um, you know, there's a scene, say I'm on holiday in Barbados, and then a scene in my next novel takes place, or my next screenplay takes place in, in Barbados. Barbados. I would have a legitimate claim to write off some, some of the expense of that holiday as research. Not the whole holiday, but some of it. But could I uh, then... What I'm interested in is the grant. <laughs> I, I, on your previous point, if you wanted, if you wanted to uh, deduct your holiday, you just need to have a few business meetings on your yeah, holiday. Sure. So, but the grant, yeah, uh, you're interested in it in what way? In how? How? Yeah, free money. Free money. No such thing. Well, to be fair, the R&D is so generous. And, and up until recently, I mean, if you've ever tried to contact HMRC, we have people sitting there ringing them all day and you never get through to them. They never answer any letters, pretty much. Um, but if you ring them about R&D, it's now recently started to change. We used to be able to ring the R&D and you would get an inspector immediately on the phone. How can I help? What can I do for you, sir? So the R&D relief, they've been pushing. They've had a budget each year of X whatever billion or million they haven't been fulfilling it it's now getting close um to fulfilling it i mean the reason this is partly a topic is is as i started my r&d journey not quite with tom but my experience with tom was um very early on when we were saying right we should do some r&d claims because he was building various things in a in an it business and um i brought in some experts to help and you know as usual experts aren't necessarily what they're drummed up to be but you know we made a claim and then we had the now that he is the top inspector i don't know for shame philip someone um uh, nice man um <laughs> anyway yeah he 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 uh, he turned up to this meeting with me and tom wet behind the ears uh not really knowing what we were doing and destroyed us completely was, and utterly destroyed us it was uh completely and utterly brutal um, <laughs> i mean he was every nightmare of what you'd expect <laughs> your worst tax inspection to be, he would go just almost uh, like bipolar from being like really nice to one person one minute to literally haranguing another person on a really specific point of law. And I remember there was one point and um, he was asking about some capitalization. A complex of, point. It was a very complex point. And he just looked at me and he just kept saying, okay, just say yes. Just say yes. Just say yes. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. 
just say yes. And I was like, do, do I say yes? <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway, it turned out he was trying to help, but he was so uh, aggressive in his... I was just like, maybe he's trapping me. I don't know. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, I have to say that I'd relive that experience every day because one of the main things I learned about HMRC from that is what they can be quite aggressive. He obviously came along and we'd made some... Some silly errors, but we they weren't fraudulent. And he figured out quite quickly that they, we just made some, some clerical errors. I think errors. he thought we were up to something. Uh, I think initially he thought that we were up to something. And so he came in really hard and he had like another guy who was learning from him. I don't know what that guy learned other than, oh my God. Uh, and, but there was some really like aggressive tones there. Um, but it actually, But in the end, he actually helped us out. And he actually helped us out in terms of getting a claim through. And he was actually a really nice guy. He boasted in the meeting about how he got the how he lost in court and then he got the law changed. It was just a, he was a very very interesting. It's like any extreme experience though, when someone really challenges you, even if it's nasty. Afterwards, you well, you learn a lot from it because yeah. you're like, fuck, I, I need to understand half these arguments he made. You know, I had to read. He was making arguments about capital income, and this is like a sort of classic accounting argument about the definition you know he was throwing at you and Joe and everything but it made me go and think about it again because you know he was coming from that perspective I mean and the um, HMRC unfortunately when he mentions the thing about changing the law there's a sad change in HMRC over the last 30 40 years is that they're not really to be trusted when they lose a case they change the law because they have the right to do that I can't it's the statute it's statutory yeah. instruments they don't have to go to parliament they can just say fuck it it's extraordinary powerful yeah, HMRC. They don't. They don't have the same. You know, they they can do investigations in a way that the police can't. They're not quite above the law, but well, they, they can are. turn up and they can turn. And but well, well, culturally, my old man explained it to me that originally it was Her, Her Majesty's Revenue or whichever. It's the collector, basically. It was a bastard, and then there was the nice side, and only the rich did tax returns, and they, <coughs> they signed every letter, "Your loyal servant." You know, people just didn't file tax returns, and they would tell because they were sort of wealthy and they would tell and these these organizations got merged not that long ago and so that brought a really different culture like when you have these big merges of companies and sort of one's nice and one's not and so there's, there's something that really shifted and then i think yeah it was revenue when revenue and customs merged, merged. with with uh, whatever the tax officer was called the collectors of tax or yeah, whatever yeah. Uh, that was inland one revenue. huge shift yes the inland revenue gordon brown had the choice to give the inland revenue to to reevaluate the powers and he just basically gave the same powers to HMRC that in our revenue used to have, including like an armed, they've got an armed police force called The Knock. It was like <laughs> a they? TV series. What? Yeah. I in, called I The in Knock. It. I was in it. We were in the Knock. in Jersey, yeah. And it was, and they, they can go into premises without warrants and stuff. It's very like... It's called a uh, pillar, Anton Pillar, they can turn up with and they can just like, you know... Like... My, my, my parents' accounts used to tell the story that when uh, takeaways were getting near the limit, the... Um, Sorry, uh, takeaways. Our, takeaway, takeaway restaurants because okay. obviously uh, cash restaurants and uh, Inland Revenue would uh, park their c- cars outside they'd estimate they'd work out they were well above the VAT limit even though they weren't registered and then they'd just walk in at the end of the night and give them a choice of either signing uh, a fine or 
or um, having a full massive audit of all of their accounts and then they'd release it to the press and my parents old accountants loved this because in the months following this they'd get all these takeaway restaurants registering for VAT who were on the borderline oh wow happened to a comedy club run by a friend of mine um what the compere who used to run his comedy club uh, had an affair with some woman <laughs> and then the affair didn't work out and the woman was a sort of uh. woman scorned and she became very angry and so reported the comedy club for tax evasion <laughs> to try and get her own back and then he hadn't been charging VAT but he was right at the threshold between where he should have been and where he shouldn't have yeah. been. But there was a few, there was all sorts of reasons why he didn't want to charge VAT enabled him to keep ticket prices lower and so he was always coming in just below but they, they then got him on some technicality and gave him like three years back tax or something it was a nightmare don't fuck don't... with the vat man yeah. I mean, that is a rule of life you know you, you pay the vat before you pay your staff I mean there's this old school rule in Britain which is kind of interesting which is the Del Boy rule I think which is like £85,000 is the vat threshold and there's this concept that sort of you know if you're Del Boy and you're sort of kind of just making ends meet we'll leave you alone and it's okay that you fudge the corners and you, it's cash in hand and that and there's still that builders still live on this concept they've attacked all the restaurants but they've left the builders alone. I mean, I'm waiting for the revenue to just, like, attack all sort of builders. Whether they just choose not to, I'm not really sure. But the old school concept, if you're a little man, it's okay that you're not quite straight as a die. But the moment you pass this threshold, you pass this sort of level, which in a weird way is kind of this VAT threshold. It's kind of like at the point at which you're making enough money that you really you should do everything right. With ruthless... Do you know who invented VAT? Was it the British? No. No, the French. Did they? Another thing to blame them for. It's a relatively <laughs> French. Yeah, it's a relatively recent tax. I think it was it goes back it it's it's like the fastest growing tax in I, I can't give you the exact numbers but Middle East it, just introduced it yeah and it's 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 really efficient it's easy to collect and governments like taxes that are easy to collect it's sort of slightly concealed it's not directly felt by the taxpayer so again that you know it's a, it's not quite is it egalitarian it's, well it's sort of a flat tax it's, 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 it's sort fairer. of fair I mean you exclude fresh goods you exclude yeah, yeah. Yeah. the basics anything considered the 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 man who only has a hundred pounds, you know, buys a whatever it is, a widget for twenty pounds and pays five pounds VAT. And the man who has a million pounds also buys the same widget for twenty pounds and only pays five pounds. Uh, I see. So it's not proportional. Sense, there is a semi-voluntary quality about it as well because you don't have to buy that thing if you don't want. Maybe to. Maybe there should be a super luxury. Uh, that's, tax, that's a good, you know we're, we're strained so, unfortunately by the European Union and I'm not into Brexit but one problem is we can't like there's zero rating on books as you'll know but not yeah, on but, audio books yeah. because we can't extend our zero rating that I we mean, have and also I mean, not on digital books that's it yeah exactly yeah. on anything digital so yeah. I meant yeah but it's it's growing in an incredible so where is I, I, can't, I can't give you the exact numbers but I think now over 100 countries around the world have that in some form or other and some like China Russia, Chile, it's their main source of income, more than income tax. I, I bet. I, I, I'm actually imagine my dad, my dad had a restaurant and um, he always used to treat VAT as, as a cost of sale because he cooked everything from fresh. So everything that he bought pretty much had zero rate VAT and everything he sold had 100% uh, 2017 Fifteen percent, whatever we were living, VAT. So we were treated as a good. He hated VAT, um, 
but I think it's, I mean, it's very difficult. And, and while it's not as uh, progressive as, say, income tax, it, it's very difficult to avoid. Uh, you pay at source. Um, and there are certain goods that are exempt. And, you know, maybe you make it better. Also, materialism is a concept. You know, yeah. we've definitely gone a bit wrong with the whole materialism. Buying stuff makes you happy. It does make me happy briefly, particularly Amazon pressing buttons on my sofa. Oh my you know, God, I find when I, especially when it's this whole thing, it's coming out now. There needs to be these apps that control it, can pick up the fact that you're pissed or you're in that mood <laughs> yeah. when you're upset. Because I start searching like pointless gadgets. I start searching, trying to find one for 30 quid that I can order and just rip apart or something, you know, and it gives you this weird momentary pleasure. And then this thing arrives and you, yeah, it's like, what? actually the worst of those, I'm sorry to slag them off, is Kickstarter. I mean, never f- go on Kickstarter when you're drunk. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, this, look, this is it. This is change my, A, most of them don't turn up if you're lucky. You know, B, when they do turn up, it's a year and a half later. Now, there's a difference between ordering something and it arriving two days later and a year and a half later where you're like, what, what on earth? I mean, I, I bought this? an inflatable wife. I've got a real one now. You know, what was I thinking? You know, um, so yeah, fuck. I mean, that, I guess, anti-materialism tax seals. Or, or you're right, we could turn, the labour movement maybe should be like, right, fuck them. We're going to get them with that. Because what we know about rich people is they love to buy houses. They love to buy jewellery. Let's just rip the shit out of Bond Street, you know, and just say it's, you know, double price. Because they don't care. Once it's, uh, you know, once you can spend five grand, you can spend ten, you know. They do, though. Of course they <laughs> Well, can. they do when they, they're the ones who made it, do you know? Because generally, it, the sort of two types of people I tend to meet, you know, sort of, if you can make money, it tends to be you're either working really hard and focusing on the problem or you're a bastard. <laughs> but, you know, you're a collector, ultimately. You have to explain this to Americans, that you shouldn't really suffer from VAT. But then they blame you as a sort of, you know, it's a, it, that's the genius of that. You've turned everyone you, you, into... We don't want to do the entire podcast on VAT, but here is a perfect story about VAT. My parents had a VAT inspection. And my... Your parents know, were the largest... Uh, vegetarian, they were the largest vegetarian restaurant in the uh, UK. They've delicious, rugby. Lovely restaurant. Anyway, my mum... She literally won't listen to this, but she she might be uh, challenging to deal with as a VAT inspector. Um, anyway, they had these two VAT inspectors who um, weren't the, the the most clued up in terms of accountancy, and they ended up looking for errors. And there was one time they had a few tills in their restaurant, and one of the tills, someone came in one day and opened the till and stole all of the takings out of the till. And when they uh, record it in the books, they record it as a negative taking in the till. And so the VAT inspectors found a negative taking in the till. How can you have a negative taking in the till? And my dad was like, oh, well, someone came in, they stole whatever it was, £100 um, out of the till and uh, um, and ran off with it. And my dad said, we had a negative take. And the VAT inspectors were like, no, oh, no, 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 no. You see, what you've done there is you recorded it as, I think it was 15% VAT at the time. You've recorded that as 85 pounds that you've lost and 15 pounds that HMRC has lost whereas really it's 100 pounds that you've lost and you still owe the VAT and they gave them a fine they find them they were probably looking for it and they find them anyway we've probably spoken enough about VAT we we <laughs> came on this show to talk about R&D tax relief plan. and doing business in the Ukraine Bad plan. and we have in the uh, meantime solved that <laughs> Um, 
So let's just finish on R&D tax relief. And Tom, what advice would you give people who are trying to um, get R&D tax relief? Uh, I'd say do it. I mean, it's uh, probably the best tax incentive, certainly for technology businesses with within the UK. I mean, it's it's we got tax relief for stuff we were already doing. Um, and I read a paper about uh, R&D uh, terms are deliberately broad because the government wants you to do this thing. I mean, Is this it's a George it's, Osborne thing. Um, it no, it's quite old now. Too late, early 2000s, they put it. It comes from Canada originally. And also, you shouldn't be afraid of it. I mean, I've yes. had the worst tax inspection, the most aggressive tax inspection you can possibly imagine, and we came out of it clean. I mean, I think he wrote off £400 worth of claim that we were trying to do, but actually helped us get through with three or 4000 And I think one of the main problems is that it is complicated, and you get these firms who want to charge you a percentage, and so they'll say, we'll, we'll work it out on a no-win-no-fee, and we'll charge you a percentage of what you earn. And when we first started doing it, <clears throat> which was before uh, maybe Clark were doing it, um, all of the firms were like this. And as soon as you said to them, well, actually, I'd prefer to pay per hour for your advice, and then following years, we'll do it ourselves, and then you can, we'll pay you per hour to check what we've written. It was just literally like no one responded. And this is what I absolutely love about Ori Clark, is that if you say, what I want to do, well, I want to do this myself. Is this sensible? Should I do this? They'll absolutely come back and go, yeah, cool, here's some templates, do this yourself, we'll check this. They'll ne I've never had a quote from Ori Clark where they would say, I want a percentage of the amount we claim back. I mean, that is ridiculous ongoing. And it's, uh, and it's around this this idea that it's more complex than it is. The government want you to do this. They're incentivizing you to do research and development. They want you to carry out research and development. As long as you're creating something new, as long as you're uh, doing scientific development, and that is a very broad term, as long as you're, you're basically creating value in research and development, you need to put a claim in. OK, great. Now, let us talk about Ukraine. And Ukraine is a country just emerging from civil war, is it? It's still... I mean, the civil war's still going who's, on. Who's, I mean, in, who's, who, who's it between? Who are the goodies and who are the baddies? And who I mean, in uh, to defend Ukraine, in, um, in the west of the country, there's no strife. I've been to Kiev many times, not seen any problems. Uh, in the east, however, there is a war going on, and... Uh, the war is largely sponsored, uh, if I can say that, by uh, Russia and... So separatists and loyalists. Yeah, I mean, like uh, when... Uh, like, is this Serbia-level war, or is it sort of, you know, Falklands no, I mean, it, war? It's, it's like literally people shooting each other, killing each other, tanks... So forth. Is it religious? So, is it? Is it? Uh, I don't think there's a religion on it. I mean, they're, they're, it's basically pro-Western um, and pro-Russian. I'd say that's how you define it. I think if it was a choice between being pro-EU or being uh, um, ruled by Vladimir Putin's Russia, the poll would have. It, it certainly wouldn't be fifty-two forty-eight. Um, I mean, the the the, the Putin Russia is very, very, very different to 
to what any Brexiteer, well, the majority of Brexiteers want. I mean, they're both unions. Though. I mean, the weird thing, and, and from a tax point of view, this is an issue, is that the EU's this beautiful concept, but it is a protective group. You know, I think I think it, it, it's that strange thing. It's like the EU is this really, I've got some really beautiful ideals about it, and you should join it. But by joining it, you've got to cut off everyone else. So here's like, something crazy. You know, the, you know, Ukraine is within the EU. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it, 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 and it's not, and it is. So it's not is, an EU nation. It's not it's an not EEA an EU nation. Nations, but this is what's interesting about where um, about what the EU is, and the EU is, you could argue, the most powerful um, multinational international organization in the world, more powerful in a lot of ways than the United Nations. You could argue that, but that it has um, various levels at which it goes out to. So you have core EU nations, of which we're still part, and then Uh you have um, uh, non-EU core members, of which you've got people like Switzerland and Norway. And then you've got EU um, nations, of which they exert like trading authority on. And then you have um, people who... Well, there's lots of lots of countries who want to be part of the EU because it's a big trading block. But then you have um, things like Interpol. So Interpol is a an organisation that I've never heard a Brexiteer say we don't want to be part of Interpol. I'm sure there are some, but Interpol seems like a good idea for me to me. Um, but uh, Ukraine has just joined Interpol and it's part I of it. I see what you mean. So there's fundamental um, institutions they yeah, can be members of. you've got to have, in terms of being part of Interpol, you've got to have an organisation that determines whether Interpol is acting right or wrong. So Interpol says, that guy's a criminal, I want you to extradite him. You need someone to adjudicate that. Who adjudicates that? The European Courts of Justice. Oh, wow. And so the uh, Ukraine has ceded parts of its authority, uh, parts of its sovereignty, as a Brexiteer would say, to uh, the to the European Union in order to be parts of, part of Interpol. And so this is why I think in terms of the way we are, in terms of an interconnected world, the, the Brexit model is ridiculous because we've got to be integrated. What, what exactly does the company do in Ukraine? So we started just as a um, an offshoring entity for Lucidica, and Lucidica does um, systems and supports for businesses in London. And so we had this... Uh, we had a, a member of staff who's Russian, but he lived in uh, uh, Kiev for a while. And uh, he and I went to uh, Ukraine for a weekend and got an office there, uh, an office <laughs> manager, and a, an engineer and a web developer, drank a lot of flaming shots, named after things that only Ukrainians named after. And then we came back and it was a lot of fun. And then it sort of built from there. And uh, um, there's in really, really good talent in Ukraine. Um, and uh, and also you get the, the, so the average cost of living in Kiev hovers within the lowest uh, cost of living of any major city anywhere in the world, including India. Yeah, we compared it to Bangalore and stuff, and it's cheaper. It's astonishing. I mean, it is astonishing how how the cost of living, how low it is in Ukraine for certain things. Why is that? Uh, uh, No VAT? No taxes? uh, 
well, what's what's really interesting about the the taxation situation? So, it, it just to, to why I think it's the point. I think the instability. Um, so that's the main reason, and the, the instability. The help. I doubt. The instability is largely caused by Russia. So when Russia took the Crimea, this was a. a, a uh, it sounds terrible. Uh, an opportunity for business to to. No, there's, there's there. many ironies. But if then, they join the EU, that would be bad in a way. Well, yes and no. I mean, I mean, what was it really interesting about that? So, when we first went to Ukraine, we thought, oh, you know, they're going to have no rules, no regulations. It's going to be like, you know, some kind of. And that was attractive. Yeah. No, no, no. In terms of like, you know, we'll go there and we'll just set up. What we actually found is it's often structured on old communist structure. And so their their labour code is ridiculous. I mean, utterly ridiculous. And their labour taxes are, are ridiculous. But what the Ukrainian government... What does that mean, their labour code is ridiculous? So you can't fire people for, except okay. for seven explicit got, reasons. So they're, they're, okay. Yeah. I, got I mean, it's, it's very, uh, very... Seven explicit reasons. Yeah, like, if they turn to work drunk, things like this. It's actually written in LA. Anyway, um, but what the Ukrainian government has done is they know they can't rewrite the labour code, so they introduced this new entity called a private entrepreneur, which is halfway between a limited company and a, um, sole, a, trader. a sole trader in the UK. Um, and instead of paying 20% tax, 36% payroll tax, 5% war tax and another few percent here and there, you pay 6% flat rate. Um, so that's transformed everything in Kiev. Um, so you name a tech company, they're there. They are there in Kiev because you can now, we are now paying guys in Kiev after tax more than they get in London because of the tax burden in London. Okay. So that's why the cost is low taxes has led to a low cost of living. Uh, well, I I think it's the the collapse of the, their yeah. currency. I mean, there was it's still a, it's a post Soviet yeah, struggling I mean, to find its identity. I, 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 should we all go to Kiev? I wouldn't say. I mean, I, I went to Cape Town recently, and I'd say the the disparity in the cost of living is much more profound in South Africa than it is in Kiev. But that Meaning said, the, 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 the gap between rich and poor is bigger in South Africa. Yeah, that said, though, it's probably more acute in the, the in Ukraine. There's much more high-rise buildings, much more uh, um, centrally controlled There seems uh, to be buildings. something slightly magical in their culture, whether that's the, the West or the East. I don't know. But everyone I know who gets involved in Ukraine likes the Ukrainians. So, oh, know. it's... I mean, in, in culturally, there very, um, you know, culturally they're, they're much more similar to uh, people in uh, in UK. They're, it's easy to to converse with. I mean, there's some things that are just mind blowing. Um, but where does humour sit in there? Sort of, you know, I would always describe the British people to understand them as the most important thing for us is humour. You know, followed probably by alcohol. I don't know. I mean, we've got a uh, a guy who's a tech lead, and he spends a lot of his time basically uh, explaining to uh, engineers what clients mean, uh, just because he's been with the company the, the longest. And so it's there's, there's a culture is always you know when you're offshoring, you never it, it's always ten, ten, a hundred times more difficult than you think it's going to be. I mean, a good example is sickness in Ukraine. Like, because they don't have a centralised health service, the Ukrainians will 
tell you that they're going to be sick and they'll tell you how long they're going to be off for. Um, and they'll be like, yeah, I, I'm feeling sick, so I won't be in until the end of the week. And you're like, what? But then conversely, you give a London, an average Londoner the opportunity of double time pay in the evening or the weekend, and it's like drawing blood from a stone, whereas you even hint at overtime to Ukrainian and they're all over it. Yeah, right. With the Ukraine, I guess it, 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 at the moment the big problem is talent, you know, uh, supply of talent, but there's a secondary force which is coming in, which thankfully is sort of virtual reality, you know, the fact Skype, all these things are meaning that do we all need to be in the same room? I'm working with someone else he said to me, because oh, I work with a virtual reality company um, who built one of the biggest games, and virtual reality's died in the games market, but they've all worked out. Oh, actually, Why? Has it, I, yeah, I mean, it, it'll, it's amazing, And but what they found out really with virtual reality is this sort of complicated games we don't really want to play. What's really fun in virtual reality is just to put you in a room, like this guy built this one where there's loads of cats and you can throw cats over a wall and people just love that. They were like, yeah, fucking fuck the cats. And they were just going over the wall and pe- people who had no great, you know. Do the cats sort of go, Rawr. yeah, they go, Rawr, and they're like, Rawr, and you're like, more cats, you know. But you put them in a room where they got to shoot people and there's, first of all, there's a disorientation that happens because you're taking over someone's senses so you get ill and you so you want a situation that's like, it's this room when you put the headset on so where virtual reality is going to be huge and a friend was saying this the other day it's coming like it is moments away it's going to be conferencing it's meetings you know we won't be Mm. sitting and doing this podcast you could just pop something because what what is the point of traveling for two hours is is it becomes you know all these tech teams they're spread bulgaria romania so you chose the more outrageous and slightly probably better drinking establishment or ukraine i think possibly you're attracted by the incredibly cheap alcohol but um you know these there's there's those two sort of movements going on where where you know i uh, think i think the problem is that i mean if you were having a meeting between two different offices in london fine people you know fine i don't think you need to travel but if you're offshoring the cultural element is so important mm. and there's nothing being there like you know you have the best video conference in the world even if you do perfect holographic projection just like small mannerisms and when you're talking do I go there and we're talking to the team there I mean, one of the things we're trying to like roll out at the moment is health insurance and it's and it's a very and we're, we're trying to do as we often do like unusual concepts in terms of benefits for our, our staff and it's it's unusual for the ukrainians and you just have small mannerisms by someone who you're talking to to your right and then you try and coax out of them and they're like no 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 and then you go out for drinks and you have a few drinks and then you just get such a wealth of feedback and information and there's definitely ways you can convert you can figure out people better but if you have a new member of the team a new junior member of the team or even someone who's just not that comfortable there is no no substitute than being in the same room with them. true uh, tom it's been fantastic talking to you thanks so much for your time and as we close one how do we can we follow you on social media or that kind of thing? And secondly, um, can you just tell us a bit about 
uh, Lucida as well. Yeah, Lucidica. So um, Lucidica, uh, the website's uh, lucidica.com or lucidica.co.uk and all of our uh, social media stuff's on there, everything from Twitter to uh, um, to LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's uh, My full name is Thomas Jeffs. Um, so, and what does Lucidica uh, do? And Lucidica, so we're a, a full IT support and services company. So we do everything from, uh, we're Microsoft Gold Partner, so you can buy your Microsoft licenses and hosting from us. We're a Google partner, so you can buy your Google apps from us. Uh, you can buy computers from us. And then we do traditional IT support, keeping servers and desktops and laptops running. And then we also do um, web hosting and business systems, um, CRMs, business processes, um, things like that. And what do you supply through the Ukraine? And so through the Ukraine, um, we have a separate entity there now called, well, it's a, it's a UK limited company called Miko Teams. And um, we supply all manner of staff. So it did start as technical staff, so developers, but we actually have quite a few admin staff there um, and uh, quite a few financial staff. Um, so if you need uh, to horsepower. save... Yeah, if you need horsepower, if you need decent talent um, at significantly lower um, costs than um, than London... What's then, a, you know, what uh, sort of low Teams. cost out of interest? What's the general... Um, it depends. I mean, it's a massive uh, range in salaries, but the average salary in Kiev is about four to five hundred dollars a month, um, and you can get ad decent admin staff for that. I mean, we've taken on members of staff whose their last job was two hundred dollars a month, so maybe um, a quarter but, of the cost. Or, yeah, yeah, but then if you're a really good coder, the market's um, pretty competitive, and you could be end up paying, I think, uh, anything up to three, four, five thousand pounds a month. But that would be equivalent salary of someone like 150, 160k in London. Every young person who's like moaning because they've left university and they can only earn 20 grand a year or something should all just learn code and within six months they would have tripled their salary. It's amazing. Absolutely. So we're in a business incubator in Shoreditch and there's loads of um, IT companies. You meet these like 28-year-olds who are on like £80,000 and you're just like... And they're like, well, I've got like six years' experience coding. Oh, of course I'm worth 80 grand. And you're like, wow. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it's like being being able to write code today is like being literate in medieval yes, times. Yes. It's that big an advantage. Yes. And um, on that note, Tom, thank you very much. Andy, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. And we'll see you again next time. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without B***. Until then, from Andy Urie and me, Dominic Frisbee, it's cheerio. Cheerio.